choices we make determine the choices we can make. It's a, it's a simple little saying, but it, it just carries such depth in it, in that when we make a choice about something, it then affects what we, the choices we can make. Because when we, when we make a choice we, and we say yes to something, we're saying no to a whole lot of other things. If we commit to a job, let's say, we take a job, we can no longer go to the beach on a Wednesday morning unless you run your own business. Not that I've seen Ian at the beach on a Wednesday morning, but the choices we make determine the choices we can make. But how do we, you know, sometimes, sometimes choices are clear and they're easy and they're no-brainers and we can look at it and go, that's the right thing to do. Sometimes choices are morally right or wrong or ethically right or wrong and we can go to the Bible and we can find out what does God say about this thing? What does God say about this moment? Should I kick the dog? No, you should not. It's bad. The, the Bible says clearly, look after your, a man who looks after his animals will prosper and live long. Those are easy ones. But you know, sometimes we get decisions and choices in life that are, that are not morally right or wrong. They're not against the word of God in any way or shape or form. And then we kind of have to get to the point of going, okay, so how do we make the right choice? We can find out all we know about the situation, but how do we, how do we know what to do in that moment? The answer is quite simple, is you need wisdom. Yeah? You get wisdom on an issue, you get wisdom on a situation, and you know which is the right decision to make in that moment. But how do you get wisdom? What is wisdom? And where does it come from? Some people confuse wisdom with knowledge, and we think that those are the same two things. We've got such a, an information overload nowadays that we think we just, if we could know more, we would be better, and the internet has proven that that is incorrect. If you watch any YouTube or social media videos, you'll find out that humanity is not getting smarter with all the access to information. It doesn't appear to be that. At least the people who are recording videos would make it seem like we're not advancing as a civilization. But sometimes we conflate knowledge with wisdom. You see, and there's a funny anecdote. Knowledge, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Some of you, your minds are blown, and that's all you're going to remember, and that's fine. Welcome. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that it doesn't belong in a fruit salad. It's a, a terrible thing to put a tomato in a fruit salad. So where do we get wisdom, and, and, and what is it? What is it? It's like such an intangible thing. But the, the word is clear, fortunately, again, on this. All, and there, is, there are books in the, in the Bible that are referred to as wisdom literature. So you, you get different, you know, there's different kinds of books in the Bible, different kinds. There's some that are letters, some that are historic, some that are prophetic, some that are wisdom literature, some that, like the Psalms is a unique thing on its own. It's a collection of songs and hymns. But the wisdom literature is books like Job and Proverb, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and those really speak to how to live life how to live a right and godly life. And early on in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 7, and Proverbs was written by Solomon as far as we know. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. So it's a giveaway. Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So the fear of the Lord is where we start 
with both knowledge and wisdom. There's there's over a hundred references to the positive nature of the fear of God in relation to our wisdom. Proverbs 9, 10, 16, 6, 31, 30, Job 28:8, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12:13, there's many. Well over a hundred references to the fear of God in a positive sense of faith. Now, the fear of God, some of us think that we only have one concept of fear, and we think in spiders. I'm terrified of spiders, and I need to be afraid of God like I'm afraid of spiders. Maybe you're afraid of public speaking. Maybe you're afraid of death. Maybe you, whatever it is, that's, a, that's the only fear we know. And we think we equate that with this co- biblical concept of the fear of God in this moment. But it's not. That is more a terror than a fear of God moment, just to separate the two, to use different language. They're both fears, but one is more a terror than the other thing. It's like, you know, in the story of Jonah. So Jonah, God sends him to go and give a prophetic message to a people who had abused the Israelites, and Jonah says, I'm not going to do it. He runs off, goes a different way, gets on a ship. Big, God causes this big storm to come up. Everybody's panicking on the ship. Jonah's downstairs in the hull of the ship, and they call him up, and they say, hey, do you know what's going on? Like, Jonah's like, yes, unfortunately, it's my fault. I'm running from the God who created everything, and he's caused this storm. And it says that the, in, in Jonah 1 verse 10, it says that the shipmates, the rest of the guys, were terrified when they realized that this is what was going on. So not knowing God, these other heathens, these Gentiles, not Jews, find out that it's God that's causing it, and there's terror. There's this earthly terror of what is going on. So then they go through this whole thing. Jonah says, right, listen, you're going to have to chuck me overboard. It's my fault. Just throw me overboard, and the storm will subside. And these people are like, yo, that's bad, but okay. (laughs) One for all, and, and you're it. And so they take Jonah, and they say, listen, Lord, don't hold this against us. He's keen to go. It's not our fault. And they throw him overboard. And it says the wind, the storm subsided immediately. And these guys, they go from terror. It says then they experienced the, they experienced the fear of the Lord. They went from terror, so from not knowing God and being in the storm of life, to suddenly having this encounter with God. The storm is calmed, and they, the fear of God comes upon them. And they sacrifice to him. And they make vows to God, Jonah 1.16. There's a difference between terror and fear. The biblical perspective of wisdom begins with a holy reverence and an awe for who God is. It begins with a holy reverence for a God who rescues and redeems those who are unworthy, you and I. God's, God, the fear of God and the wisdom of God cannot be separated from His redemptive act. If you want to know the wisdom of God, if you want to experience that, you first have to understand that God has saved you and I, that he's made a way for you and I to be saved. Out of that place, a holy reverence and awe comes up because if you know yourself at all well, you know that you are not worthy of salvation. You are not worthy of God coming and dying for you and I, in and, in and of who you are. But Jesus says, you are worthy because I love you. So because of who he is, we get to be worthy. And out of that place, we have a holy and reverent fear. It's out of a response to God's redemptive acts. It's out of a response to the salvation that we get through Jesus, that we can have a holy reverence and a fear of God that is rightly seated in us, that isn't like a a fear of an abusive dad who might beat me with a big stick. Some of us have that fear of God because we've experienced poor fathering in this life, or we've experienced abuse from authority figures, 
and we have that kind of fear of God in our lives. But friends, that's not the fear of God that brings wisdom and knowledge and understanding. That's the fear of God. That's a fear that is a terror. Fear of God that brings wisdom and knowledge and understanding rightly views who God is. So much of, of what we see in the world around us is irreverent. It's a nice old word. You watch a lot of the comedy, a lot of people, you know, they've got crosses around. I was watching a guy, Matt Raff, the other night. Some of you might know him, young comedian. And he wears a cross. And he was talking about being religious and not religious. And, and he's this, and he's got a bit of faith and stuff like that. And he said, he, he said I kind of... He said, I wear it, but I'm not really like very religious, but I kind of like it. It's just in case, you know, so that if I die and I get there and Jesus is like, sorry, you can't come in. He's like, hey, hey, I got the armband. I spent the money. I bought it. I got it. And I just thought that is incredibly irreverent. It was funny, but it was incredibly irreverent. You have zero understanding of who God is. You're not going to stand before the God of the universe and go, I bought a chain and cross, so I'm allowed in. You have zero fear of God in your life in a holy way, in a right way. You see, we are called children of God, children of a good father. We're called a, a royal nation, a holy priesthood. We are adopted into his family, sons and daughters. The Bible even goes so far as to call us co-heirs with Christ. Christ is the Son of God. He's the heir to everything, and we are co-heirs with Christ. And we can get so, and, and it's good, and it's right. We must know that, and that's what we're going to do, <clears throat> excuse me, in the identity series is go through a lot of what the Bible says who we are. But we can get so caught up in some of that that we become arrogant, and we lose our holy reverence and awe for God. We lose that fear of God, and we live lives that are unfearful of God, if I can say that in the right way, lives that lack wisdom. I firmly believe that in our current day and age, uh, the complete disregard for any moral absolutes or, or moral truth and a kind of a, a do whatever feels right for you attitude. Have you heard that? It's been going for a while now, the postmodern thing of like, hey, do whatever you feel is right as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's impossible. What you do affects everybody else eventually. I firmly believe that that attitude, that, that selfish kind of me attitude is destroying lives. And I think we're seeing it in the, in the, the rates of mental health um, problems that are just increasing astronomically in the Western world particularly, where that, what's it called? Dogma has taken, taken hold. Where we think, man, I can live individually and do my own thing and I'll be okay. We can't. Society is showing that it's not working that way. It's failing. So much, in the, so much of the world lives in a way that has zero fear of an almighty God. They have no idea of the consequences or the, the thought of an, of an eternal judgment. Now, if you, if you struggle with that, if you think, man, how could God judge? I want to say to you, it is one of the most reassuring things in the world that one day there will be a final judgment. Because if you have a look around, there are a lot of people who get away with doing wrong things, very wrong, horrific things. And the only way that we can stay sane and not get bitter and twisted about that is by going, one day they will stand before God, who is able to judge rightly and wrongly. One day they will stand before God for what they have done. And I will too. But there is, and that should evoke a holy fear in us. And a holy fear that goes, hey, I don't need to revenge that thing. 
Because God is going to take control of that. As Paul writes to Romans, he says, let, let revenge be God's, not ours. The only way we can do that is if we have a fear of God that understands that one day there'll be a ju- judgment. The Bible, and particularly the Old Testament and this wisdom literature, rejects the idea that a path to, to truth and knowledge and wisdom is found in human autonomy. So in other words, in being on your own, and we can figure it all out. The Bible says that's impossible. We can know stuff, and then we do, and we've learned a lot, and we know a lot, but we can't know everything. The way we know everything is through fear of the Lord. That's where it begins. Begins knowledge and wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9, 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So three quick things that the fear of God does. The fear of God firstly serves as a foundation for true wisdom, as we just read. In a world filled with knowledge, it is the fear of God that provides discernment and righteous decision-making. You know, as we navigate often the complexities of our lives and we seek guidance from God, He is the one who will direct us where to go. And I don't know if you've ever had tough choices or moments in your life where you've had to choose between things and neither one of them has been right or wrong. But one is way more alluring than another one. And God says, let that thing go. And you're like, really, Lord? I need a sign. We had a moment in our lives where I had to walk through that. We were in Rustenburg and highly frustrated with what was going on in our lives at the time. We were frustrated with church. And an opportunity came up for us to start a, like a post-matric program and a, um, an adventure center in Dulstrom at a fly fishing and equestrian estate in Dulstrom. Sounds terrible, eh? Can you imagine? So high, it's, Dulstrom is one of the highest towns in the country, so they were going to build like a, a high performance center there for athletes, and we were going to run sort of this post-matric program for these um, high school athletes to come and train at altitude and, and have an adventure center on it as well. We spent a year and a half traveling every second Saturday to Joburg and back and meeting with people, meeting with local government. I met Matthews Pozzo, who was, uh, I think he was premier or whatever they called it, of Mpumalanga at the time. We met with, and we, we spent hours and hours and hours and thousands of rands developing stuff and business plans and putting it all together and going to Dahlstrom and visiting and site plans. And, and after 18 months, they said, right, we're ready to go. And I felt Jesus say, no. Oh, jeepers, Lord. After this, all this time, he just said no. I was like, Lord, when do we move? And he just said no. I was like, yes, that's hard. You're going to have to tell my wife. Because she likes fly fishing and horse riding way more than I do. And, it was an inc- and I was like, love, Jesus says no. And she's like, I don't think you're hearing him right. All this time, and now he says no. And I'm like, hey, I'm sorry, this is what it is. And we had to lay that thing down. And like, we stayed in Rustenburg. It's like at the gates of Mordor, if you've ever been to Rustenburg. That's what it's like. Fly fishing a question, Dahlstrom, Mordor. And Jesus says no. It was years that we stayed in Rustenburg still after. And I didn't have, it wasn't like a, but there was an intimacy and a presence and a relationship with God that had, I had a fear of God in my heart to know I cannot do what I want to do. I have to listen to what he says, even though I don't understand and I don't like it. There is a fear that understands that wisdom is something more than what I can know. And in that moment, I had to lay it down. Psalm 111 verse 10 reminds us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. Embracing the fear of God 
allows us to align our thoughts with His, allows us to uh, align our actions with His will. We get to line up with what our lives with what God is busy with. And that is the safest and nicest place to be. It's like when you're slipstreaming. You ever been on a bicycle? Okay, when you're running, you don't really go, most of us don't really go fast enough to slipstream. But if you're running, if you're on a bicycle and you get into someone's draft, you get behind them, you, you save up to 30% of the energy that is ex- expended when you are riding directly in someone's draft. How many of you would like to save 30% of the energy in your life that you expend on going forward? It's going to be a lot. You're going to save a lot more if you'll just draft with Jesus. If you'll just get on his wheel and go, right, I'm going to follow you where you are going. You get in the slipstream, life is much easier. And the beauty of these scriptures and, and what I love about what the Proverbs scriptures say, is that, and, and even that one of Psalm 111, is that the fear of God is the beginning of a journey to wisdom. It's an ongoing thing. We don't get it right on day one. But if we will submit and we'll say, right, God, I may have got that wrong, but I'm on the journey to getting wisdom from this. And a a journey, I'm a destination person, me personally. So when we drive somewhere, you maybe got one pit stop and that's it. We're not stopping to see stuff. Just look out the window while we drive past. Take a photo. We can Google it. I'll show you someone else's photos. We're going. But I've had to learn that a journey is fun too. That the actual process of getting there is fun. You see, we want to get wisdom. We want to get to the end. But God says, I want to walk with you to that place. God says, I want to journey with you to that place. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a journey that we take in a discovery of who God is. Wisdom based on the fear of Yahweh enables humans to use our resources to explore God's world in His ways. And I just thought that is such a beautiful quote. We get to use God's resources in His ways. As we walk this journey, God teaches us and shows us how to live wise lives. Secondly, the fear of God leads to a life of righteousness. Another nice Christianism, serious Christianese coming out this morning. Proverbs 14, 16, we're told, The wise fear the Lord and shun evil, but a fool is hot-headed and yet feels secure. You see, our reverence for God, a a holy fear of God, serves as a moral compass. It guides us from the pitfalls of sin and towards righteousness. Now, as we grapple with the challenges of our time, and we face some unique things, we face some unique situations. If you look at what's happening with the whole discussion around gender, that is unique. No one's ever been through that before. In history, we can't go back to the 1380s when they dealt with it and sorted it out. There's a lot of complex stuff. The war in the Middle East, highly complex. How far back do you go in determining who's right or wrong? Where do we go? How do we live in a way that honors God in these things, that is righteous and is good? We need a moral compass or a a wise, a wisdom compass to navigate us through those times. I read a paper the other day. I was, I was struggling with the Middle East thing because people ask, you know, you're a pastor, so people expect you to know everything about everything. And I had very little interest in the history of the Middle East um, in terms of what's happened there in the last 500 years. But I had to go and find out and start figuring out. And I read a paper written by a chap. Um, in a, he's, at the moment, he's in a church in Belito, and it was brilliant. And it was absolutely phenomenal on, on his take on what is going on in there. But it comes, and I just thought, yes, how does this oak 
get this so right. I've read a few of his other things, and I've read some of his books, and there is just an incredible depth of wisdom that he wrote in those papers in that book. And I just thought, yeah. And I was chatting to a mate of mine who's friends with him, and he said, you know, he is one of the wisest guys we know. But it comes from 50, 60 almost years of walking with Jesus, of serving God day in and day out, faithfully, passionately, radically living for God. The wisdom that he had comes from a long walk with God, a long walk, a journey to wisdom. And he lives a, a righteous life out of that place. You see, the, the, the wisdom of God, what, what is, let me ask you this, what's the most important part on a yacht? Anybody got any ideas? Some, most of us are going to say the sail. The keel. The keel is the most important part. A rudder you can make a plan without. Not great, but you can. Sails, you can row that thing. I'd rather be on a boat that is standing still than a boat that is upside down. So a keel is the heavy part on the bottom of a boat. It's often unseen. You don't know. Sometimes it's long and thin. Sometimes it's like the, the long, deep thing that goes down. It's a heavy part that keeps that yacht from tipping over. So when the weight is far down below the surface of the water, it doesn't matter if the wind pushes those sails, the keel holds that boat. And if it tips over, the keel is the thing that rights it up again. I'm happy to be on a boat that is stationary. I'm happy to be on a boat that is going the wrong direction. I'm not happy to be on a boat that's upside down. And some of us, our lives are like that. We'd rather have a life that's going anywhere, even if it's upside down. We, so, we just want to be seen to be moving. We've got like, Lord, blow wind in my sails. And God's like, hey, maybe you should uncapsize your boat first. Get your keel right. And that's what wisdom does for us. The fear of the Lord brings that wisdom that is like a moral compass that leads us to righteous living, that sets our boat right again. Thirdly, the fear of God fosters a deep and intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. In Genesis 22, Abraham demonstrates his fear of God by being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. So God gives Abraham this incredible promise. He says, I'm a, you make you, you were, you know, Abraham without the H, you were exalted father, and I'm going to change your name to Abraham. You're going to be father of many nations. That's what people are going to call you. Promise of the son. You all know the story. Isaac is born. God says, right, I want you to take Isaac and go and sacrifice him up on a mountain. He goes up to Moriah, this mountain, takes Isaac up there, makes Isaac carry the wood, lays him down on the altar. He's about to sacrifice him, and God stays his hand and says, stop. Now that I know that you are willing to sacrifice the promise that I gave you, you're willing to lay down the promise. See, effectively what Abraham demonstrated is that God is more important than the fulfillment of the promise. In the New Testament, we read that Abraham reckoned that God would be able to raise Isaac up out of the ashes. He just figured, that's the promise. God can do anything. This is what it is. Abraham knew that righteous living, that the, his, through his relationship with God, he had wisdom to know that I need to follow God no matter what God says I must do. The relationship with God was more important than the promise of God. Can you say that about your life? Is your relationship with God more important than the promises He's given you? Genesis twenty-two twelve. God speaking, it says, He says to Abraham, Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. It's incredible. The fear of God brings wisdom and brings a right relationship with the Father. Puts us in that right perspective of who God is and where He's 
promises should be. As we live in a way that lives with holy and reverent fear of God, knowing that He is God and I am not, we're able to follow Him no matter what He asks of us. See, some of us look at this thing and we, we, we think that fear and the fear of God is going to restrict my life. Is God's going to put all this stuff on my life that means I can't do anything fun. But the fear of God is not a restrictive force, but it's a liberating and a transformative power that can enrich our lives. The fear of God is the key to wisdom, righteousness, and a flourishing relationship. You know, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. So in other words, don't fear people. What's the worst they can do to you? Kill you. And then they can do no more to you. He says, but I will show you whom you should fear. In Jesus' words, whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Hmm. Not too many, like, magnets for the fridge on that scripture. (laughs) But it's incredibly liberating when you think about what Jesus is saying there. He's saying when you get your priorities aligned, and you you don't have to be scared of people. Ezra Toff Benson, as far as I know, this is a, a quote from him. He who kneels before God can stand before any man. You heard that one? He who kneels before God can stand before any man. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. If you get your priorities right and your perspective right, and you say, I'm going to fear God and not people, it doesn't matter what people can do to me. You can do what you like to me. I'm going to choose to fear God because that is how I'm going to live my life. Because I know that the worst you can do to me is send me to heaven sooner. My family will be sad. Me, not so much. Paul says, I long to be in heaven. It's better that I'm with you, but I long to be in heaven. Don't fear people. You see, when we fear God, we are liberated from the fear of everything else. We're liberated from the fear of performance. We're liberated from the fear of what people may think of me. We're liberated from fear of going bankrupt. We're liberated from the fear of whatever you fill in the blank. Whatever that thing is that drives you day in and day, that keeps you awake at night, that you're afraid of. Maybe you're afraid of your kids getting sick. Maybe you're afraid, whatever it is, be liberated from that thing because you fear God. A holy reverence and awe for God. It's no mistake in Acts chapter 9 verse 31 that Luke speaks to the church as having the early church. He says that it has, I'll read it, it says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened, and living in the fear of the Lord, they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and they increased in numbers. The church had peace, it was strengthened, it was encouraged, and it was growing because they were living in the fear of the Lord. In one of the other parts in Acts, it says that God did this incredible thing, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, God strikes him down. Fear comes on God. Everybody's terrified of the church, but they're terrified of God and what's going on in the church. But people are drawn to it. The number, it increases daily. You see, the fear of God isn't stifling. It doesn't hold down. It doesn't suppress. That's the lie of the enemy. He says, man, if you're going to, this thing's going to stop you from doing what you want to do. No, no, friends. If we will live our lives in a right way, in the fear of the Lord, searching for His wisdom, in right relationship with Him, 
We will live lives that are free beyond what anything in this life can give you. Free from the fear of people, free from worry. Man, that sounds really good. It is a good place to be. So I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you in your situations in life, in your daily life, in your workplace, in your family, in your coming and your going, in your own attitudes in your heart. Is there a fear of God in those moments? Is there a holy fear of God, a reverence and an awe that asks what is going to come on us in this moment? Jonathan Edwards was an incredible man. He was an, um, an American, unfortunately, but he lived, I'm kidding, uh, he lived in the uh, 1700s and he was an incredible theologian and thinker. Yeah, he was one of, the, one of the great theologians of his time and his legacy is incredible of his family that he's produced all these amazing people in his lineage. But he preached a, a sermon one Sunday morning called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's about an 11 or a 12-page read. The English is a bit difficult, but there's some updated ones you can read. And he spoke in that moment about how tenuous the gap is between what we, where we are and slipping and falling into hell. That many of us are held by a thread like a spider over a fire is the one image he uses. And he preached the sermon, and according to people who were there, he read it verbatim, so no exciting, no eye contact. And he, when he looked up, he stared at the ropes that would ring the bells at the back while he read the sermon in a monotone voice, like 12 pages of reading. Can't imagine the church would have been too excited, but it said that the people, he had to stop and ask for silence on a number of occasions because the people were shrieking out of fear. They were so gripped with fear that they would cry out and scream. And what came out of that Sunday is one of the greatest revivals America has ever seen, the greatest awakening in the church, because the fear of God gripped those people. And out of that place, the church exploded. I thought about reading that sermon this morning. It would have been a lot easier, easier sermon prep. But uh, it's quite harsh. I just was like, yes, this is really rough. I don't think we're quite there yet. Maybe in three weeks' time. Yeah, David, Dave's going to do it next week. Thank you, Dave. But friends, we want to live in a way. What, what I'm getting at by telling you that is that the, the fear of God brings life. The fear of God brings freedom, it brings liberty, it brings transformation in you that will set you right with God. It'll bring wisdom into your life. If you are going in a, into a place and you're going, man, if you're going to buy a house, if you're going to buy a car, if you're going to send your kids to a school and, you, and you're going to go, what are the pros and cons? That's great, and you might make a good choice. But will you sit and go, God, what should I do in this moment? Where should I send my kids? What school should I send them to? What car should I buy, Lord? Have you ever asked that question when you bought a car? Almost every one of you in here has got a car. Did you ask, what car? You're just like, white Toyota, let's go. Huh? <laughs> eh? I'm kidding. But the point is, we've got to get wisdom, and we've got to get wisdom from God on those things. And it begins with the fear of God. It begins with an understanding that says, I, I don't know everything. Do I buy the, the most expensive car I can afford? Do I, look, do I try and look holy by buying a beater, beaten out there? Neither of those are right or wrong. Not morally, it's not right or wrong to buy a VW. Is it wise? Ask God. But friends, 
It begins with a fear of God that says, I know that God can make better choices than me. Lord, what do you want me to do? And if he says, I don't mind, then that's fine. Then you choose. But sometimes God will say to you, hey, do this thing. And you're like, yo, that thing. This one, this other thing is much easier, Lord. And uh, we have no fear of God, and so we choose the other thing. And then we struggle. Years down the line, we struggle. Let the fear of God be a holy reverence in all moment for you that sets you on a path, on a journey to finding wisdom in who he is. Living with holy reverence and awe for our Father, our King, and our Lord is the most liberating and freeing way to live. Let's do it. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you are beyond comprehension. You are transcending and transcendent of everything that we know. And yet, Lord, we are still so arrogant as to think that we know best. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we humble ourselves before you, that you would speak clearly to us, Lord, that you would speak directly and obviously to us. Father, forgive us where we've been slow to listen. Forgive us where we've been independent and autonomous of your direction, your wisdom, your guidance. We want to be those who come before you in a holy reverence and awe, Lord. We want to be those who come before you in a godly fear and say, Lord, have your way with us. What would you have us do? Here we are, Lord. Use us. Lord, I pray that you would remind us each and every day to seek out your wisdom, to to journey on this path to wisdom and righteousness and all knowledge and understanding in you, God. I thank you that you make it available. I thank you that, God, you are with us, that Holy Spirit, you walk with us day in and day out, that you promise to give us words in situations where we, we might not have any others. I thank you that it is by your presence that we can be distinguished from everyone else around us. And so, God, as we humble ourselves, as we come to you fearfully, won't you distinguish us by sending your presence with us wherever we go? Lead us into all wisdom and knowledge and truth, God. Amen.